Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute joins us to discuss uh, the new energetics report that he and his team have put together. But first, joining us today are two retired Democratic representatives, Tony Coelho of California and Martin Frost of Texas. They're with the Council for a Secure America, a group that advocates for domestic oil and gas production and support for Israel. They argue that while the world should move to a more sustainable future, Russia's war on Ukraine underscores the critical importance of energy strategy to avoid dependency on unfriendly nations, whether uh, they're Russia, Iran, uh, OPEC states, and others. Gentlemen, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you, Vargo. Yeah, thank you. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsor our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. Tony, let me uh, start off with you. America uh, just made the biggest investment in uh, renewable uh, energy uh, in a move that not only fosters greater wind and, and solar and other technologies, but also investment in oil and gas because everybody recognizes that they're a critical uh, bridge, that we don't have uh, suitable replacements. Synthetics are uh, you know, a, a while uh, away as well. You guys argue that renewables are critical, but so is a sensible oil and gas strategy uh, to, you know, as power sources uh, that will be necessary for some time. Um, there are some who can look at the mess that we're in now and say, hey, look, a whole bunch of nations were short-sighted. Uh, at the end of the day, people sometimes are short-sighted, just like nations are. What are some of the most important lessons from your perspective uh, from Russia's war on Ukraine and the energy aftermath? Vargo, first off, I think it's important that we, over the years, many folks did not believe in climate change. And there are still a lot of deniers. Uh, but a lot of states and the government over the years started investment in renewable energies. Uh, California, Texas, uh, all over the country, uh, there's been a lot of wind power that's been developed. So we recognized that this was an issue that we had to face, like we've had in all other revolutions, the agriculture, the manufacturing, and so forth. Now, in regards to that, there are folks who believe that we're going too fast, that we're uh, hurting, in effect, the oil and gas industry. Oil and gas is critical to us and will be for a long, long time. Um, our, our issue, though, over the years is a lot of the politics. We understood that one of our problems was to make sure that Israel was strong uh, with us because the Arab nations, we could not depend on them. And we felt that the, uh, the relationship with Israel was important to keep, and we have. And that's what it's all about. We obviously found out with the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine that uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, one of the big producers, uh, sided in effect uh, not on our side. Um, and we realized that there was a problem as a result of that with the Russians, Iranians, uh, Saudis. And so the relationship with, with Israel it was critical, is critical, will be critical. Um, and But important 
is that we have to keep developing the alternative energies, but we it's critically important that we maintain our role in our lead in regards to oil and gas. That's the stable part of this whole uh, conversation. Martin, uh, there are some uh, critics who would say that we're in this mess in part because we didn't move to these sustainable technologies, uh, sooner technologies, by the way, that America led in, whether it was on the wind or on the solar side that China, for example, has capitalized uh, on. And, and that's in part because of a very strong energy lobby. You know, Texas, for example, would, you know, continue, even though Texans are making money off of wind uh, energy. You know, the, you know, uh, Texas has a tendency of finding wind farms off of um, Massachusetts uh, at, at the end of the day. From, from your standpoint, what does a sustainable path forward uh, look like? You know, as, as we were preparing for the podcast, you pointed out, you know, that Texas is increasingly becoming a leader in renewable energies, right? Which is for some a little bit confounding on, on, on why the state keeps fighting sort of a, a sort of a cultural or political element at the time when it's making money on it. What does that sustainable transition look like? And um, talk to us about on the fossil fuel side, where we need to be making uh, investments as we build this sort of national security, uh, right? I mean, because ultimately this is a national security issue as well. Yeah, I'd like to start with the national security and then I'll move on to the, the, the broader question you've asked. I mean, clearly the Russians have decided that they're going to weaponize energy. And uh, they are doing everything they can to uh, discourage our allies in Western Europe from helping Ukraine and joining with us in this fight for democracy. Um, so it's, it's in our national interest uh, from a foreign policy standpoint, as well as a domestic uh, standpoint, that uh, we remain strong and that we particularly remain strong in dealing with the Russians. Uh, uh, this is a personal uh, to me. Um, my family uh, on my mother's side was from Lithuania. And my wife's family was from Ukraine. Uh, though we don't have family in either of those countries anymore, we understand how dangerous Russia, Russia can be as it tries to expand and reconstitute the old Soviet Union. So it's in our foreign policy interest that we be able to help our allies. And part of that help is providing energy when they need it. Now, the price is a different question that you've raised, and that has to be negotiated and has to be handled in everybody's national interest. But it is clearly in our interest uh, as a beacon for democracy that we stand firmly with Ukraine and that we not permit the Russians to blackmail uh, our Germany and the other countries of uh, Western Europe who are joining with us in this fight. Now, in terms of uh, our national uh, policy, it's very interesting. A number of years ago, Congress um, repealed the 40-year uh, ban on the export of crude oil. And part of that, uh, a, a part of that, uh, it was a package that also included um, uh, increased and continued uh, tax subsidies for wind and solar. So Congress as an institution has tried to promote both, but with the understanding that you can't uh, turn off the switch, you can't uh, uh, devote, um, you can't develop uh, and rely entirely on renewables over the short term. So we have to have a balanced policy. We have to permit everything and do everything we can to uh, further renewables, but to make sure we have a strong basis for, uh, uh, for oil and gas. And that's what we've been advocating. Um, is there, are there any specific uh, places where you would be putting that oil and gas uh, investment? I'll ask the Texas uh, oil state man 
uh, that uh, question first. And I, I have a strategic question I want to put to you in a, in a second, Tony. But Martin, if, if you were doing the investing, where is it we need to be doing the investing when it comes to oil and gas infrastructure? Well, remember that uh, uh, some of the people who helped establish our organization are from Oklahoma and from Texas. And the, particularly some of the um, members of our organization, the Council for Secure America, developed the uh, oil and gas fields in North Dakota. So it's not just a Texas issue anymore. Um, and uh, I think that uh, uh, Pennsylvania has a renewed interest in uh, oil and gas production. It was the original oil and gas state, of course, a long time ago. And, uh, and other states too. This is, uh, uh, we, we look for it, we find oil and gas wherever it is. And uh, at the same time, we make sure that everybody understands that it's our long-term interest that we uh, develop our renewables, but that we can't uh, change to them, switch to them overnight. Tony, let me uh, go to you to um, a strategic question, right? The Abraham Accords are uh, very historic. If they hold up, uh, there is a uh, concern uh, that the Netanyahu government in, in Israel uh, and some of its provocative actions could put the agreement under a lot of stress uh, and strain. Um, countries uh, in the Gulf, whether it was Saudi Arabia, uh, as, as well as the UAE uh, and others, did not particularly like America's drive for energy independence. Uh, obviously, the Bush administration uh, advanced that significantly. It came to fruition. Uh, the Obama administration continued those policies. Uh, and it was uh, funny that we did that to reduce our dependence on these states that would use that energy as leverage against us. Uh, obviously, the compact for a long time was, uh, you know, they provide the energy, we provide the security, even if we quibbled. And there was remarkable annoyance on the part of uh, some you would talk to uh, in the Gulf, uh, that America did reduce its influence, uh, that's its dependency, and therefore leaving these countries with less leverage, and they didn't like that. Uh, and and uh, even though they were very used to pushing us around on energy, uh, said, well, we're not going to be pushed around by, by you like this, and we'll strike our own security agreements, whether with China, Russia, or, or anywhere else. And you see a little bit of that. As America builds this energy independence, um, greater independence. Well, how do we strategically handle some of these dependency issues? Because as long as you have an Abraham Accord, I suppose the challenge is a little bit less. On the other hand, there are those who argue that it gives Israel and Gulf Straits maybe greater freedom in, in having this pact. How do we need to negotiate the political backlashes that come with energy independence, especially with nations that look to their, you know, look at their energy capacity as their strategic weapon, something that Saudi Arabia, you know, as, as Martin just mentioned, used to great effect uh, in, in the wake of the Ukraine invasion. Well, I think, Vargo, the most important thing for us is to make sure that we're energy independent, that we're not dependent on another country, particularly uh, Saudi Arabia and others, uh, that we basically uh, continue that independence. That gives us strength. I understand that you can abuse that strength, but it gives us strength to work with uh, Europe in particular to protect them in regards to uh, what Russia is trying to do and others. But that is, you know, we're the number one power in the world. Uh, we got to make sure that we don't have uh, these countries uh, like Saudi Arabia thinking that they can uh, uh, hold us uh, in, uh, in basically in their grab. Uh, and so I'm one of those who says, uh, we'll work out the issue of 
uh, the concern that these nations have that we're energy independent. But more importantly, we have to be energy independent. That means uh, we keep developing the renewable energy, but we des desperately need to make sure that oil and gas is there as our vehicle as we go through this revolution that has taken place in regards to energy. Um, so I, I don't want to sound flippant, but I think that it's critical for us to remain strong. And I know that some of these um, countries uh, resent the fact that we're growing strong, but look, at they didn't have any trouble when they had control and they moved us around. And so I, I think, and I, you know, look, at I'm a proud American, so I believe in what we're trying to do. Our relationship with Israel is very strong and will continue to be strong. There is a concern about the current administration and whether or not they will impact the Abraham Records and that relationship that's been building politically uh, between Israel and the Arab nations with us um, may not advance uh, at this point because of the current uh, Israeli policy. So, uh, but go back to what I feel strongly about, Vargo, is that sure, some people resent our energy independence, but if we take care of that in a, in a um, uh, reasonable way in dealing with other nations in the world, um, in Africa and in South America and so forth. But look at Venezuela has big oil. We are working, trying to work with them in regards to that. So there, right. from our position of strength, we can be very helpful to all nations throughout the world in regards to their independence from those who want to abuse their rights. And just remember the, the recent history that um, and when uh, the price of gasoline was going up last year in the United States, we went to the Saudis. Uh, Biden went to the Saudis and asked that they increase production, uh, which would have the effect of bringing prices down. And they flat refused to do that. So we cannot rely on the Saudis. Uh, we have to treat them as a, as a power, a regional power, but we can't rely on them uh, to make sure that we're able to promote democracy and promote our own self-interest. Uh, well, I mean, and, and that was uh, particularly, uh, you know, um, right. I mean, the, you know, everybody saw the political black backlash uh, that a president who said, I'm going to hold you to account is fist bumping the very guy. Uh, Saudis giving indications they were going to be flexible and then sticking it to the American president. Right. I mean, there are a limited number of times that you do that uh, and, and end up, um, you know, sort of succeeding. Let me, just comment, let me just comment on that. I think all that was very positive. Basically, what Biden tried to do was to develop that relationship with the Saudis because we were in serious trouble in regards to the price of oil and so forth. Uh, he made the visit. It was tough politically, but he made the visit. The Saudis basically implied to him they would work with us. And then they shoved it to us. Well, you know what? We found out just where the Saudis really are. And that, in effect, enforces everything that Martin and I have been talking about, right. is that we can't be dependent on the Saudis. We have to be strong, independent, and work with other nations in the world, not anti-Saudi, but not let them think that they control our foreign policy, our domestic policy. We have to get away from that. And we did. So the reach out to the Saudis, I have no trouble with that. We showed ultimately 
who they are, what they believe, and so forth, and affect what they are is not pro-American. And we have uh, to understand that. And just, uh, re it, just remember that uh, um, our friends in the environmental community, and Tony and I both uh, worked with the environmentalists when we were in Congress, but some of them want to take the position that we should not be producing any more oil and gas, yeah. that we should leave it all in the ground. That's crazy. That's not in our national interest. Uh, again, this has to be balanced. You've had people in the oil and gas uh, industry in the Southwest who said, okay, let's, let's develop these alternative energy uh, sources, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. And it's not going to happen in the next five or 10 years that we would be primarily reliant on alternative energy source. we, sources. We have to do both. Well, uh, and I would I, just say, Vargo, that 25 years ago, I helped start this council because of that. We were anticipating right. all the problem in regards to renewable energy starting to move and so forth, and basically some anti-Israeli issues. So we developed this council with the oil and gas folks and people who support Israel in order to build for the future. And obviously, we're still there. We're still fighting. It's It was the right thing to do when we started it, and it's the right thing to have it today. It's interesting because a lot of uh, uh, farmers and ranchers now rely on income, as you indicated, uh, from wind energy. Uh, this is uh, in the lean times. Uh, this helps them stay afloat. And there are an awful lot of uh, royalty owners, oil and gas royalty owners, who also are farmers. And in lean times, those royalty payments uh, make the difference of their being able to stay in business or not. We've got just a very brief uh, time. I have one question. Uh, either of you can pick uh, who answers it. Um, the United States uh, capacity has been uh, absolutely vital for our European allies. They're weaning themselves off of uh, Russian energy supplies. As we said at the very top, this is a bus, you know, this is a risk that you could see coming. But again, people tend to be short-sighted. Um, the issue that the concern is that these nations are uh, at a time when they're in economic duress, paying top dollar for American energy, uh, and that that is likely to cause downstream uh, political problems for us, populists trying to take advantage of it. France is subsidizing energy costs. That means that there is going to be a bill to be paid uh, downstream. A lot of nations are doing that. Um, does the United States need to give oil break, uh, oil price breaks or subsidize energy that we're sending to our allies and partners to avoid a potentially negative political backlash, maybe a year or two uh, downstream, whichever one of you wants to take that question. Do we, do we need to take a more strategic view of this and say, hey, to allies and partners, uh, we're, got, we're gonna give you a good deal on this because you are coming along with us in standing up uh, to, uh, to, to the, the Russians in Ukraine? Well, I think both of us can give a, a brief answer to that. We need to take a realistic view uh, we need to work with our allies. Uh, this is still a uh, uh, free enterprise system, uh, but uh, we do need to help them, uh, help them help us. Basically, we have to help each other. And the answer to your question is absolutely. Uh, but we needed to get our independence. We have our independence. We now are in a position of power to be able to do what you're asking is that we have to be conscious of the price. But as we're energy independent, we have the ability to do that. Gentlemen, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure uh, to uh, have you guys on the program. Thank you. Thank you. 
Joining us now is Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy submariner who is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, who is also the co-author, along with his colleagues, Dr. Nadia Shadlow, Dr. Uh, Tim Walton, and Braden uh, Helwig of uh, the new report, Rockets Red Glare, Modernizing America's Energetics uh, Enterprise. Brian, it's always a pleasure having you uh, back on the program. Happy New Year and welcome aboard. Happy New Year, Vago. Great to be here, as usual. Uh, great report, uh, as always, uh, with a great title, obviously hearkening back to Congrave's rockets that were immortalized in our national uh, anthem. Uh, certainly an early example of energetics uh, being used to good effect, uh, at least from their standpoint. And thankfully, we survived the, the bombardment. Um, you note that every single conventional weapon uh, in America's arsenal, from pist uh, pistols um, to the missiles that carry uh, uh, nuclear warheads, uh, rely on virtually the same energetics that America used during World War II. You say that the one exception is the uh, explosive CL-20 that dates from the 1980s. Uh, worse, uh, a third of the raw materials uh, are foreign sourced, including from China, which sort of harkens back almost to the Soviet, um, during the Cold War, when we relied on uh, the Soviet Union for the titanium we used SR-71s uh, for the spy planes with which to spy on the on the Soviet Union. What are the key takeaways uh, from the report, and, and how do policymakers uh, need to think about America's energetics enterprise? Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, the technology we've been using in our munitions and our missiles uh, in a lot of ways dates back to, like you said, World War II, or even before. Some of the technology from Congress rockets is still being employed today. Those same chemical mixtures are still employed in some uh, munitions. Uh, but the main findings of the study were, you know, one that uh, our energetics uh, enterprise that supplies munitions, both the warheads and also the, the propellant for missiles, um, is a very complicated industrial base that's strung together with baling wire and chewing gum in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, to, write, to really fix it, we've got to start coming up with a more coherent approach to investing in it. Um, to laying out the authorities for who's in charge of monitoring it and making those investments. Uh, and then we got to figure out a way to drive innovation in, into that enterprise by allowing for a more efficient testing and evaluation process for new munition technologies. So really, those are the big three challenges that we're facing is this investment in the industrial base, lines of authority, uh, and really, how do we get innovation into the industrial base? And we offer some specifics in terms of how to go about doing that. I want to start with the health uh, of the energetics enterprise compared to that of our adversaries, right? I mean, so it's one thing uh, to say, well, you know, we're not doing that good of a job, even though we may be considerably more advanced than our adversaries. What do our capabilities, capacity, as well as technology rank with those of our potential adversaries, specifically uh, China and Russia? Yeah, so you look at what China's done. Uh, China made a concerted effort over the last 30 years to uh, create an industrial base that is supporting uh, its munitions enterprise or its energetics enterprise. So um, a lot of the precursor chemicals, as you noted early on, are created in China almost exclusively. So as we said, 30% of our chemicals that we use in our munitions are coming out of China. Um, that, that is able to support their munitions enterprise. And because uh, China has, has as, you, as we all know, a really large missile force, they've created a very strong demand signal for the production of not just the precursor chemicals, but also the, uh, the propellants and the warhead materials that are turned into the weapons that they use. Uh, and they keep that industrial base humming 
uh, due to that strong demand signal and also because they manage it on a very closely monitored basis. So they have people that watch this and ensure that there's redundant lines of supply and that there's also uh, resilience throughout that industrial base. Now, to some degree, that's uh, one benefit China has is they started this all in a lot of ways from scratch. So they were able to do it in a very coherent way, whereas we've assembled our munitions industrial base over the course of, well, centuries when it really comes down to it. But, you know, its modern form is really since uh, the Second World War. So 50 70 to 70 years of, of you know, kind of organic change has resulted in this very, um, you know, uh, kind of kludge together mixture of, of companies, right. Uh, government organizations, government facilities, government-owned contractor-operated facilities. Um, so we don't stack up very strongly against the Chinese when it comes to the munitions industrial base. Um, and as a result, if we were put in a position of having to accelerate production of pretty much any of our munitions, uh, we're going to have choke points that are going to create um, log jams when it comes to actually trying to produce more munitions at scale. Uh, you know, it's it's a little reminiscent. It's a little bit reminiscent uh, of our uh, nuclear. A weapons enterprise that's you know scattered across you know what i mean and no other nation does it the way we Absolutely. do with as many labs and as many hands in manufacturing and uh you know public private uh involved in the process which uh which is un- unnecessarily complicated whereas um our uh, friends and adversaries tend to be somewhat more focused about it you mentioned the importance of making investment what kind of investment? Um, you know, you're pretty good at putting dollar numbers, uh, figures on things. Obviously, policymakers uh, like that. What's the kind of investment required, and where does it need to be going? Well, we're talking, you know, investment on the scale of probably in the double-digit billions of dollars. So it's not going to be small, but we're not talking also about a hundred billion dollar investment. So we're talking about over a twenty-year time frame. You know, in the in the on the scale of twenty to thirty billion dollars, so it's it's something that would be commensurate with what we would have to do to, for example, um, invest in the shipyard industrial base of the United States, or what we might need um, to invest in uh, microelectronics to be able to ensure the supply of at least militarily relevant microelectronics. So it's on that scale, um, and uh, it seems like a, a pretty large number, but that's in part because. Uh, this is not a, there's no commercial, there's a very small commercial demand for this. Um, and there's opportunities clearly to partner with commercial providers. You know, so the, the advent of commercial space uh, launch uh, companies has created a demand signal for commercial suppliers of propellants, uh, mostly liquid propellants, but also some solid propellants um, that the DOD could leverage to help, you know, maybe defray some of the cost. But by and large, this is a government enterprise, whether it's owned by the private sector or not. Um, so the, a lot of the investment has to be government, whereas in other areas, the industrial base, you can tap into a commercial uh, opportunity, you know, like microelectronics or or even shipyards. There's opportunities to maybe have some of the commercial you know, uh, customers cover some of that cost. Um, what is the time scale we need to be thinking, right? I mean, um, do we need to be thinking that, uh, about this three-year five-year, 10-year, what's the, the time horizon we need, right? Because, I mean, urgency, right, right time matters no, and, in this equation. Yeah, so I, there's a like there's a very near-term dimension to this, which is um, we have munitions today that we're trying to build in larger numbers. We've talked about Ukraine before, Stinger missiles. Um, uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, Gimler's rockets, um, all, trying to increase the production of those, trying to increase the production of um, javelin missiles, all of those require both ordnance for the warhead and propellants for the the, the uh, engine. 
Um, and we're we have a limited supply of those, and that's constraining how fast we can build those. Um, so some of the investment could be made today in the form of just investing in a steady demand signal for those munitions. And then just like we've done in the shipbuilding industrial base, especially the submarine industrial base, make the investments in the upstream providers of the elements that go into those munitions. So it's um, not just you know the actual assembly of the final uh, the rocket or the or the missile, but it's also the precursor chemicals that are coming out of you know a company that is you know probably a single source provider to those. Um, so there's those investments need to be made, and that's, but that's kind of a stand that's a traditional supply chain sort of investment like we've made in the nuclear power program and in the submarine industrial base for a long time, um, and that's where you're talking about in the you know, hundreds of millions of dollars you know type right. of investment. Uh, then there's a longer term investment in terms of actually creating more of an, 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 a rational industrial base for munitions and energetics longer term. And that gets to the idea of, you know, making a lot of our government owned facilities that actually assemble a lot of our munitions, especially army munitions, uh, making those uh, public private partnerships and putting the government investment in those to update them and make those attractive to a a commercial uh, operator that would come in and then operate the facility under government supervision. Um, and then long, long term, you know, we've got to come up with a new generation of, of energetics that are able to support the kinds of performance we need in the in going in the future. Because you mentioned, for example, CL20, which is the newest energetic that the US has created, which came out of China Lake, hence the CL. Um, right. It's been around since the 80s. It's not actually used in any U.S. munitions because it's uh, because of the testing regimen that they have to go through and just the, the cost associated with that and the lack of a demand signal. Um, so if the DOD starts demanding the kinds of performance they need in the, in the smaller sizes that they need, um, and then they you know can come up with a more rational testing regime, which we talk a little bit about in the study, you, know, you could facilitate that longer term in, uh, investment in the new generation of energetics. And this is where China's already gone. They're already investing in and actually fielding that next generation of energetics. So we need to make those kinds of investments as well, uh, just like we do when it comes to new radars uh, or new uh, jet engines. We have to think about the, the energetics enterprise as just another piece of the industrial base that we have to invest in, in the, through R&D. Um, you, you know, um, let, me, let me ask you about allies and partners first, and then the um, the how to do this smarter uh, piece of it, which you've uh, heart, touched on um, a, a couple of times. Um, Bill LaPlante, uh, the uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, uh, Dr. Uh, Bill LaPlante, uh, visited our allies and partners. Uh, we all have munitions shortfalls, right? We're in this uh, period where we not only want to recapitalize, but also go to the next generation. And that's been a little bit of the trepidation of the department do I need to just build what it is that I more of what I had, or is it actually better for me to sort of, you know, if I'm going to start some of these production lines from scratch, better ways for me to build this, uh, these mousetraps. Um, we want to do this with our allies and partners. How do we bring our allies and partners into this enterprise, uh, given that we all have pretty much all the same needs, right? We want to build longer sticks with more firepower uh, on them. Um how do we need to think about our allies and partners and what it is they can bring uh, to the table? 
Yeah, so a great point. Um, and I think, you know, looking at like, for example, what's happening with the Chips and Science Act, the investment in microelectronics, um, there's a discussion there about the idea of friend shoring or ally shoring. So you don't have to bring everything back to the United States, um, but you can put it out, you know, help in, allies invest in that kind of capacity themselves. So for example, Australia has committed to make a, a billion dollar investment in developing a precision guided munitions industrial base. Um, which is a sizable investment, um, which the U.S. could partner with Australia on to say, well, here's some pieces of the industrial base that we just don't have, you know, either in large amounts or we don't have at all because we're dependent upon China for precursor chemicals. So can you, you know, make some of those investments in Australia and we'll make other investments here in the United States and together we'll be able to create a, you know, more resilient industrial base that's not dependent upon China. Um, you know, similarly in Europe, there's a lot of chemical companies that um, could contribute um, some precursor chemicals or some of the uh, manufacturing capacity to build munitions um, that the U.S. needs. Uh, they might build their own munitions, but they could expand that with you know combined U.S. Uh, NATO investment. Uh, to expand that capacity. But we need to come up with a way to, like with microelectronics, we don't have to have everything in the United States, but we could have pieces of it in other countries that are friendly to the United States rather than being dependent upon China or you know, the Russians for uh, for some elements, which I think we're pretty much divorced from Russia, but we still depend on China, as we said, for 30% of the precursor chemicals. Um, let me ask you one last question, uh, which is um, if we find a better mousetrap, how do we actually actualize it at the speed of relevance. Um, there is innovation happening. Our mutual friend, Dr. Wes Naylor, is the CEO uh, of a company called Helicon Chemical. Uh, I'm, I'm not marketing for them. It's just that, you know, it's a brilliant, uh, it's a binder uh, that promises to increase the range, uh, same size, weight, everything else for munitions. But because of the, the binder, uh, it makes the energetics uh, better. It gives you 20% uh, potentially more range that's um, being tested now, assuming that proves correct. What's the pathway to adoption, uh, right? Increasing the range of every single US missile by 20% is, you know, just by swapping out the rocket motor is potentially game changing. Uh, in, in its, uh, right? I mean, imagine ballistic missiles with 20% more range that fits in the same box. Um, what's, what's the path? What's the organization? What's the mechanism, Brian, that we need to be yeah. able to take a good idea like this and actually get it into the force as opposed to, you know, okay, assuming 100 people do the right thing and individual competitions work out, this is going to take us 100 years to get there. Yeah, so I think, you know, so the first thing is, and uh, Mark and Mark Gunzinger and I have both done work on this together and separately on the idea of getting the munitions at the right range. You know, so the, the challenge with munitions is as you go to longer ranges, they generally get bigger, you can carry fewer of them, and you're kind of losing the salvo advantage. So you've got to come up with a way to hit that sweet spot of a weapon that's got sufficient range that you can be survivable when you're launching it to hit a target, uh, but also it's small enough that you can carry enough of them to make a difference. Um, and uh, there's opportunities, like you said, with what's going on with Helicon, um, to be able to extend the, the range of existing weapons uh, or make a weapon that's smaller, that's able to um, you know, achieve the, the same range. So you can take a small weapon, right. you know, get its range longer and have it replace a longer range weapon that's bigger and you can carry more of them. You know, like, for example, if you can get a uh, naval strike missile to go 20% you know, longer, um, you might make it actually a relevant Con, you know, contributor, uh, whereas right now the naval strike missile is kind of perceived as being too short a range to be really the kind of thing you can use to outstick a, a Chinese ship. 
So, so then the, the, the challenge right now in, in the testing and uh, evaluation scheme for munitions is if you're using a new, a new energetic uh, material from scratch, like CL20, there's a very extensive testing regime that has to do with instances of munitions and, and evaluating the chemical com composition and all that, that, all that stuff. Um, if you're doing something like Helicon is doing, which is taking existing energetic material and just changing how the matrix for it is, is con constituted, um, there's a less severe testing regime, but the key is for the DOD to begin demanding the performance that that would provide. Um, because right now, the requirements process is not calling for it. Um, there's no demand signal that says, you know, I need to do whatever I need to do to drive this updated munition through the testing and evaluation process. Um, so that's really the, the key initiation of this, uh, because the, the testing regime, you can accommodate, you know, this updated you know, matrix because it's a much less uh, comprehensive testing scheme. The challenge is DOD's got to, you know, create a strong demand signal for it within the existing requirements and acquisition process. Uh, and we're not seeing that, you know, so that, that's the problem uh, is DOD is not asking for the performance that these updated energetic materials would provide. Brian, uh, tremendous work uh, on your guys' uh, part. Uh, thanks very much for doing it, uh, and great to have you on the program. Uh, and I hope uh, folks are listening, because uh, at the end of the day, this is one of the things that is central and core, uh, and we've been focusing on platforms, not as much on the munitions, and certainly not as much on the enterprise uh, that, that gives us the kind of capability we need. So thanks very much for highlighting a very important issue. Thanks, Vago. It was great to be here.